All right, um, there's some speculation that perhaps uh, other countries are doing cyber warfare against us. Uh, you might have heard about uh, the Russians, of course. Uh, now, a lot of folks will chant Russia Gate, Russia Gate uh, when you say that. Well, we brought on Jacob Helberg. He's the author of The Wires of War and senior advisor at the Stanford Cyber Policy Center. And we want to talk it through. Uh, so, Jacob, uh, welcome. Thanks for having me. Uh, no problem. So, um, you talk about a Cold War and how some of our adversaries, China, Russia, etc., might be engaging in you know some form of cyber cold warfare, if you will. First, let's talk about what does that mean? How does that show itself in America? So the way that it's manifesting itself is with the advent and changes in technology, dual use what in the tech industry and in the military community, people refer to as dual use technologies, which are everyday technologies, commercial products that have potential strategic dual use applications like artificial intelligence, internet fiber optic cables, low orbit satellites are increasingly embedded in our everyday lives. And a lot of governments and including America's adversaries have realized the potency of these technologies and the fact that they could be subverted and used to undermine and compete, undermine the United States and compete in what military experts called the gray zone. And so because this has this is increasingly becoming a predominant and pervasive feature in international politics, I've chosen to describe this dynamic as the gray war. So um, tell us more about well, how the gray war is conducted. Um, so I don't know if you have examples of China doing it because once you say the word Russia, half the country loses its mind and can't think anymore. So what would China do as an example to affect us? So the way that I make sense of this landscape, I divide the gray war into two fronts. There is what I call the front end of the war, which is basically the software layer of the internet. It is the information that people see on the front end of their screens and interact with every day. That part of the war has been the part of the war where we have seen First and foremost, a lot of information operations, chiefly, you know, Russia was obviously the first mover in the space. Today, there are a lot of other players, including Iran, Saudi Arabia, and China is a big player on the front end. And there's what I call the back end of the war, which is basically the hardware layer of the internet. This refers to the physical information infrastructure of our everyday internet network that includes devices as well as submarine fiber optic cables and 5G equipment. And in that, on that front of the war, you basically have two players. You have the United States and you have China because those are the two countries that have the technological prowess to be serious competitors in that war. The, the reason in my book that I describe the back end as being the most important part of this geopolitical struggle is because if you control the internet at the hardware layer, you could potentially compromise and subvert everything that runs on top of it. So, you know, we hear about that every once in a while. Well, what if they were able to shut down electricity grids, etc.? So, how real is that threat? So, if we were, to, let's say, China invades Taiwan, which is not impossible. And we we counter and and we go there to to block it. 
And so hence, we're in a conflict, a real conflict, the hot war, not a cold war. Not We're not launching nukes or anything, but we're in a real military skirmish, right? Uh, what could China do uh, and what kind of damage would it do here in America? Um, so interestingly, China actually gave us a slight glimpse of that last year when it had a border skirmish with India. And obviously the skirmish escalated and it resulted in the death of 20 Indian soldiers. But an interesting and I think historically significant event that happened in that border skirmish was a Chinese cyber attack on the Indian power grid that took out power on 20 million people, including power. It forced hospitals to run on backup generators in the middle of a pandemic. And so I think that was interesting because that's a potentially a cautionary tale for what Americans might be able to expect in if a gray war were ever to escalate between the United States and China. So now let's go to the front end because that's the end we see more often and has had more of a real impact in America. So what does information warfare look like? What do they do to try to affect public opinion in America, for example? They try to, so interestingly, one of the overarching dynamics that I discuss in the book is that front end warfare is in a lot of ways changing our old conceptions of speech censorship. So a lot of the times front end related tactics are focused on information operations that are aimed at suppressing one narrative to promote another. So in the old days, censorship basically amounted to blocking or banning access to information in the analog world. Interestingly, in the digital era, when we have infinity feeds, information isn't just about whether it's in or out. And censorship is about whether information is up or down in your feed because most internet users only ever interact with what's at the very top of their feed. So if an autocratic government is able to manipulate people's feeds by, for example, prolifically publishing information in order to swamp out everyone else's content and viewpoint, it's able to actually suppress certain narratives and to promote another. Well, Jacob, if you're a superpower, wouldn't you almost be obligated to do this to your adversaries? If you think they're your adversaries, like I think it's a terrible idea. I don't think America should do it. But if you're thinking from the mindset of gaining an advantage, well, why wouldn't you want half of America to become cheerleaders for your country? Like, in, for example, in Russia, why wouldn't you want us to be in chaos and and disorganized and fighting one another? It's it's almost an open invitation. You almost have to do it, don't you? Um, I think the tactics make a lot of sense from their vantage point. I mean, from their vantage point, they want to make the world. You know, we want to. It's the old uh, Woodrow Wilson idea. We want to make the world safe for democracy. They want to make the world safe for autocracy, and so it makes a lot of sense from where they're coming from. But I think ultimately. For Americans that care about democratic principles of governance, it is very concerning. And I think that one of the reasons that a lot of Americans tend to get pretty passionate about these topics is because I think there is this intuitive sense that 
the US is that the 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 substance of what we stand for as a country is ultimately we stand for a set of higher principles than simply you know autocratic power. For the United States, for our foreign policy, the US is about an idea. It's not just about a country. So for us, you know, for for a lot of Americans, it, we we find it odious when we see autocratic governments trying to engage in tactics to undermine democracy around the world. Okay, but Jacob, at the same time, we have to be realistic about what America's done too. I mean, we've done this back end front end warfare against other folks all the time, and and oftentimes horribly unjustly. So back end. Somebody took out Iran's nuclear computers, that's for sure, whether it was us or Israel. And and that seems to be classic back back end cyber warfare. And then on the front end, we've been agitating and creating civil unrest against leaders we don't like, even if they were democratically elected for decades now. So certainly we do it as well, right? Um, it's true that there have been excesses uh, on the American side of the equation. Uh, there's no question about that. America is a very big, raucous, pluralistic, uh, imperfect country. Uh, I do think that one of the major differences that we have as a country uh, compared to countries like Russia and China is that, you know, it's as President Obama used to say, it's it's not that we're perfect, but it's about America's capacity to self-correct and the fact that we have the capacity to look inward, talk about our flaws, have an open debate in a free press, you know, call congressional hearings, encourage debate about these things, and hopefully at the end of the day, self-correct as a result of these debates. Yeah. Okay, I'm only half with you on that one. Yes, that is the ideal. I love the idea of America. I love the self-correction. We got to self-correct a lot quicker, and we're still doing it. We're still doing it in Venezuela, Bolivia, and all these other places, and it's stupid, and it doesn't actually help us. It helps giant corporations that actually fund our government. But anyways, one last set of questions, which is, okay, we don't. I don't like it when we do it. I don't like it when it's done on us. So how do we stop it? Is there any prayer at all of stopping it, or no? We're just going to have to deal with the fact that. All sorts of foreign governments, and by the way, corporations will be doing information warfare for the rest of time, and we'll have no idea what's true and what's not. I think the best way to stop it is for the United States and its like-minded allies in Europe and in the Asia Pacific, like Japan, South Korea, Australia, to work together to help develop a set of democratic principles of governance for the internet. In my book, I talk about this concept of opposing techno blocks. Obviously, China is trying to export its centralized authoritarian version of the internet. And so it's very important for the US to work with its allies in order to solidify and strengthen an opposing democratic internet that is decentralized, where that's bottom up and that offers an alternative positive vision for the internet that's shared with our closest allies. I'm curious to see what that would look like. All right, Jacob Helberg, and the book is The Wires of War. Thank you for joining us. We appreciate it. Back on the conversation. Is the internet an addiction? What are we going to do about it? 
Well, let's talk it through uh, that and many more interesting topics with William Halal, PhD. He's actually Professor Emeritus of Management Technology and Innovation at George Washington University and the author of Beyond Knowledge. Uh, Bill, welcome. Thank you, it's good to be here, Cenk. All right, um, let me start in a funny way, beyond knowledge. Uh, okay, uh, I'll be your huckleberry, what's beyond knowledge? Well, we're living beyond knowledge now because the uh, this post-factual phenomenon that we've seen for a few years now caused by social media is is post-factual. It, it doesn't count on, it transcends knowledge and, and logic and data. It's based on beliefs and values. So that is subjective consciousness and uh, it's, it's paralyzed uh, our, our government in many ways. So I think we are living beyond knowledge now. We're living in an age where values and beliefs transcend knowledge. All right, help me uh, and the audience understand that a little bit. What do you mean by subjective consciousness? And what do you mean that they have transcended uh, facts and, and logic? Well, values and beliefs uh, dominate uh, logic. People choose their beliefs and then they they find the, the, the data, the knowledge to support their beliefs. I think that's pretty well established. And that's what's fascinating about what's happening now. We've uh, we've transcended knowledge. We, we knowledge doesn't seem to make uh, much importance right now because the values and beliefs are wrong, and so we're we're caught in this conflict between stark differences in consciousness. So that's true, of course. Uh, funny enough, the the right wing would not acknowledge that because they don't acknowledge facts. So they would say, no, ninety nine percent of the world scientists are wrong. They're wrong about climate change. They're wrong about vaccines. They're wrong about coronavirus, and and we. Have facts from one percent, and our since our values and beliefs are more important than your stupid facts, we'll just cherry pick. We'll just cherry pick these facts, so-called facts. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. That's exactly the logic. Yeah, and that's where we are, and and it's a it's a result of the digital revolution. The digital revolution has automated knowledge, so we've been forced to move up the the hierarchy of of consciousness. From the objective stuff, not knowledge and facts and data, into the subjective realm of values and beliefs and vision and that sort of thing, and that's where the country is operating now. But but Bill, so why was it the internet age that led to that? Why why didn't we have that? You know, in the old days when we had traditional media. Well, we didn't have social media. Social media is a big change, I think, and and automation. We're automating the routine stuff. And so we're being moved up the the value chain, so to speak, into the more subjective realm. And uh, I, I, uh, I mean, why why is this this is unusual? It's, it's so strange. It's happening around the world, where uh, uh, people's uh, conversations are unhinged from what is commonly understood to be reality. And so it's a very difficult, very dangerous. State that the, uh, the the world is in really, and we have to find a way to control what is a monster. Social media has become a monster. So, uh, but why it, do you think? I mean, if we're going to control it, we have to know what the underlying issue is because you can't just yes. stop social media. So, it, it, presumably, you would have to fix something that's wrong, almost literally in the coding, right? So, uh, what is it, and how do we fix it? Well, I think we have to just regulate this. There are a number of things we have to do. One is I think it has to be regulated like any public utility. And that could be done by 
government say requiring companies to have a, uh, a board, which is what Facebook does. They have a board that supervises their content. That's a good way to do it. They could measure the amount of disinformation on these different sites. They could penalize people who's, who uh, send uh, uh, flagrantly uh, uh, wrong information on the internet. We could use AI to spot uh, information that is uh, uh, promotes violence or that is flagrantly wrong and, uh, and alert people to that. The, the biggest uh, need I think though, we, we learned from studies we've done, is that we have to really uh, get this into the educational system. It has to start with teaching young people how to discriminate between uh, honest information and inaccurate information. And that's hard to do today. So they have to be educated to do that. And we need a culture that prizes truth telling, which is not the case now. That that has been uh, uh, damaged, that that uh, that principle in our country at least has that has been damaged in the last few years, I think. So you talk about internet addiction and the World Health Organization has called it a mental disorder. Um, okay. but. All companies try to addict people to their product in some ways, like McDonald's wants you addicted to quarter pounder and cheeses. So Facebook, of course, wants you addicted to Facebook because that's the that's their product. So um, how should we stop that? And how do we stop that? Well, you know, that's one thing, uh, advertising, but there have to be limits placed on it because uh, it, we can't, it's intolerable. You can't run a society this way when there's this enormous confusion and distrust of the media and threats, violence. So um, all societies have to control their information to some degree. And we have done that in the past. We used to have a fairness doctrine in TV. So that we, we do that and we just have to do a better job. of. But mainly we have to develop a culture that prizes truth and knowledge, I think. And leaders have to show the way. We have to educate young people in how to do that. Uh, it's, it's going to be hard. It's not. It's going to be a, a tough haul, but I don't see any any option because it's, it's out of control. So uh, I'm wondering if there's a positive side of this because you talk about the age of consciousness and that sounds good. Uh, so what's the age of consciousness uh, and, and how does it relate to this? Well, that's what we're in, that's what I'm, I'm saying, Jake. Uh, we are operating on the level of consciousness now with all of the post-factual stuff. Uh, that is, uh, I think it's by definition, it's beyond knowledge. We're operating at that level now and we have to understand that. And if we do understand it, then I think we can see our way through it. And one of the most important things to recognize is that this is a change in social evolution. We've moved out of the knowledge age that we've been in for the last 20 years. We've been operating in the knowledge age where knowledge dominates everything. That's no longer the case. We're now operating beyond that in consciousness, an age of consciousness. And if this is true, and I think it is true, every stage in social evolution has been driven by a revolution. I think we're likely to see what I call a mental or spiritual revolution in in maybe a decade or two uh, towards a, a global consciousness. It's the only way that people uh, think today that we can uh, have a sustainable world. The world as we know it today is not sustainable. You can ask people on the street and they will agree with that. So we have to have a dramatic change in thinking. 
and it's something like a global consciousness. All right, I want to come I back. That's small. I know that, Jim. That asks a lot, but I think that's really those are the facts. Okay, I want to come back to what that means in a second, but but okay. let me see if I understand this right. When you talk about consciousness, um, I usually view that as a positive thing, but in this case, you're saying, well, it's problematic because we're getting past yep. knowledge. Uh, and so I would frame that a little bit differently. Uh, I think the world and, and specifically humans run on stories. And what some bad faith actors have done is that they've kind of tapped into the storytelling and what you're calling consciousness. And, yeah. and directed people away from facts and logic and directed yeah. them to fear and anger and their emotions. Yeah. And humans yeah. have a lot of emotions and that affects us and they know that. So they tell a different story and they've got yes. people to believe that story. Does that sound right? Yes, that's exactly true. That is consciousness. That's you know values, beliefs, stories, yeah, that's all consciousness. It's subjective. People differ in in their their subjective consciousness, and I want to make an important point, Jake. Consciousness is not always good. It includes everything, just like information includes bad information. So consciousness can include uh, terrible forms of of, uh, of beliefs and uh, outrageous uh, lies. It can include hate. It include everything. Yeah. Now that's what makes this such a challenge. Yeah, and Bill, so I get it because I think that there's this battle of stories, if you will, and hacking into yeah. the main storyline of logic and progress and reason was inevitable because people are going to want to do that for their own private gain because humans are selfish, and then you will get into you know we had information warfare, now we have in a sense consciousness warfare, and yeah, so. Right. So now that it's begun, you're saying the solution is global consciousness. Now help me understand that. What does that mean? I, I it's well, we don't know really. Uh, there are a lot of people who are trying to define it. We we have defined it at my company in terms of five principles, but uh, uh, there's a growing interest in this. I hear the term everywhere, Jake, global consciousness, and that that is the challenge to define it as a vision. A vision that we have to work toward. The way a business defines a vision that it wants to accomplish for its for its company. We need a vision of where the world is going to resolve these terrible differences in consciousness. Yeah. So, but that would so now you're going to freak the right wing out a lot because it sounds they are going to interpret that as new world order. So you. You're going to get us all to think the same things they're going to say, etc. So tell me how it's different than that. Well, uh, you know, the Dalai Lama, for instance, has for many years been making a point that all religions uh, revolve around a few basic principles. So that would be a place to start. The common principles that religions all advocate, and it could be anything, but we need a vision of a sustainable world, or we're not going to get there. It's it's really that simple. Uh, the present mindset is not sustainable, and people know that. Everybody seems to understand that. The pandemic made it very clear. And so we have this enormous challenge of defining a vision of a sustainable world that people will agree on. And I know that is an enormous challenge, but it has to be general enough so everybody can buy into it. That's that's true, that's true. Yeah. We we can't have a global consciousness if we don't all agree. So yeah, almost yeah. by definition, you have to start it from scratch, and you have to say, can we all agree? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. 
Okay, yeah, we got, you yeah. know, general agreement on that. And now let's start to build off of that, right? Exactly, it's that kind of thing or else it's just not gonna work. We're just not gonna have a civilization really. Right, all right, fascinating stuff. Uh, William Halal, uh, the author of Beyond Knowledge. Thank you for joining us, we appreciate it. Thank you, Jake, it's been a pleasure.